I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. Today on Truth of the Matter, we're really lucky to have my great friend and great colleague, Dr. Steve Morrison, a senior vice president at CSIS and director of our Global Health Policy Center. You can hear Steve and I in our podcast, Coronavirus Crisis Update, talking every week about what's going on with COVID. But I wanted to bring Steve on Truth of the Matter today because there's a lot going on with COVID and it relates to Ukraine and it relates to China. And we want to talk about it with you, Steve. So, you know, I just want to start out, Steve, by saying, you know, Tony Fauci was on the news hour last night. We're talking on Wednesday today. He said the U.S. is out of the pandemic phase and some of the data you know, is really stark. So, you know, the seven-day average of cases is now 47,000. It's down from 800,000 in January. Hospitalizations is 1,800, down from 21,000, 22,000 in January. Deaths, 330 a day now, down from 3,400 in January. Are we really out of this pandemic phase? And, and why did Tony say that? You know, we're in the midst of a wave at this moment of BA2 in this country, right? An Omicron variant that moves with exceptional speed through our population. And yet, and the cases are going up, they were the 44 or 47,000, those numbers are, are up significantly. But as you've pointed out, we have a, a wall of protection in our population. Three quarters of Americans got some form of infection or, and or vaccination. So you combine the, the protections acquired through infection, protections acquired through vaccination, you combine that with the arrival of antivirals, which can stop hospitalization and, and extreme illness and death if you, if you administer them rapidly in the first five days of infection. We're defanging this, basically. And the virus itself is proving to be less dangerous in that sense, as long as the protections are in place. As long as you have some wall of immunity and the like, and we're going through this wave and we're not seeing a sudden spike in hospitalizations and deaths, we're seeing that it's becoming manageable. And I think what he says, the pandemic, he's really talking about the worst of it, the most emergency-based, acute, dangerous phase for us as a country seems to be over. Now, he and others will always qualify that by saying, of course, we don't fully understand what the next variants may look like. We have, to, we have to still be protected and be vigilant and be able to spring into action rapidly in detecting and responding to any new threats that may be more dangerous than what we face today. So we have transitioned out of that acute phase into now a phase where we are going to be living with this virus. We're going to be seeing it as seasonalized, we're going, this doesn't mean that we don't continue to get vaccinated periodically. It doesn't mean that under certain seasons with certain high intensity, high case counts that we may go back to mask wearing. It also does not mean that we cease playing huge attention to the vulnerable populations. In other words, we have to take a much more targeted approach now in how we manage this and pay attention to the elderly, the immunocompromised, children that are not yet vaccinated. And we need to continue to complete the process of getting our numbers up 
that are fully vaccinated and boosted at least once, if not twice. And we, of course, have the other residual problem, which is 12, 13% of our population are refusing vaccines. And there's another percentage that are still on the fence that puts us up to about one in five Americans who aren't vaccinated, fully vaccinated. And we have, we have to factor in waning immunity. And so there's still kindling out there. If we get, there's still people that are going to get sick that are, that are vulnerable, that don't have that wall of immunity and protection that I talked about. And we need to be very watchful of those populations and continue to try to engage them. I think also what Tony Fauci and others in the government are trying to do, they put out in March a new pandemic preparedness plan. This is growing out of that plan. The plan was a recognition of the changes in the pandemic and the changes in the politics and the need to have a more systematic approach in managing an endemic virus with all the tools that we have today and to acknowledge that we do have those tools. Our testing is much improved, access to antivirals, our vaccines are still excellent and evolving. We still have gaps, the under fives and the like, and, and there's still questions and debate around boosters and the like, but we're in a, the message is we're in a much better position. I think also the administration is trying to bring the temperature down around all of this. Mandates are falling away and the doing away with mandates and shifting to an individualized approach where it's incumbent on the individual to make sure that she or he is protected with all the tools and layered protections that we have. That is, seems to enjoy pretty broad political support. And so we know that in this last year, mandates for vaccines, mandates for masks, all of these tools became highly politicized and divisive. And are part of a culture war that's going on. And we're in the midst of a very divided country around this. And so I think, you know, mandates are going away. We're moving into this period of consolidation and trying to make sure that our gains are locked in and to get people to see it as a, in a very positive way. And in hopes that this takes some of the, some of the heat and, and, and toxicity out of the way Americans are feeling and thinking about this. Another factor that's very important here is longevity, time. This has gone on for well over two years. 1918 was 18 months, the 1918 Spanish flu. I think the country, and it's not just the United States, I think this is a worldwide phenomenon. People have, people have reached a point of exhaustion, frustration, often anger, and are turning away and not listening. They don't want to talk about this. There are dangers, of course, in this period. We can talk about the danger of return to neglect and complacency in our feelings. But what I think Tony Fauci and others are articulating is the new vision for where are we and how are we going to behave and approach this? All right. So is that message confusing? As you point out, there is a rise in cases recently. There's down from January, as we pointed out at the beginning of this, but a rise in Omicron variant cases recently. And there's a lot of confusion out there. The mask mandates were just ended by a unilateral decision by a federal judge in Florida. The Biden administration is not fighting that, but rather they're 
appealing in court so the the broader ruling doesn't affect the federal government's ability to govern. Tony's coming out and saying the pandemic's over. We're hearing some mixed messages. One of the great things the administration did was it brought on Ashish Jha, our good friend, to be the COVID coordinator, and he's terrifically clear. But do you think Americans are confused about where we are right now? Well, the transition by definition is confusing, right? This is a big change. This is a sea change. And and it's a complicated message. It's saying we can begin to relax controls. We can begin to return to more normality, but we still have to be vigilant and we still have to be very conscious of the many tools that we have and use them, right? Be paying attention to your environment. If you see an upsurge, an outbreak in your environment, be more cautious about social distancing. Be more cautious about staying away from indoor big events. Wear a mask. Use an antigen test. Use an antigen test that now every citizen in this country is eligible for eight free antigen tests a month at the local CVS or the other outlets. So I think the message is confused because it is a big transition. It's confusing because there's so much dispute, contestation, and disinformation out there. And there's so much frustration, anger embedded in this entire experience. People are really angry with one another, trying to get people to talk sensibly and civilly about this pandemic, we're approaching. The other thing that's happening, of course, is we're approaching the one million mark of Americans lost to this pandemic, which is an undercount, but it's just around the corner. It's just a few days from now. And that's going to be a somber national moment. And I think that the timing of Tony's remarks is not coincidental. I think that they are trying to reset the dialogue, the national dialogue about what's happening. They're trying to change the storyline. They're trying to reset and reconnect with Americans. They've tried this repeatedly, and they're not giving up. And Ashish Jha's appointment was a reset in the sense that Jeff Zients did a great job. You can't do that job forever. It's exhausting. Bringing in Ashish, who's an expert communicator, who's respected across the political lines, he brings a fresh voice. He comes in, he's able to listen, he's able to put all of these things into very common day language that people respect. He doesn't come across as arrogant. Not that Tony Fauci comes across as arrogant. I'm saying many... He's just a terrific spokesman and communicator, yeah, and as you I pointed out, and very, very approachable for Americans. And I think that, you know, a lot of the populist anger that's out there about the price people have paid in their lives this pandemic, it gets vented against authorities. And you can't, we have to continue to try different things to get people to listen again and listen with some trust and get some trust back up in the, in the authorities. We've really paid a big price in terms of damage to our institutions and damage in the trust in our authorities. And it requires a continued effort and a continued rethink about how to do that best. And it's going to be tough because a lot of people don't want to listen. They don't want to hear anything more about this. They're done. You hear this all the time. All the I'm time. done with this. You're at a I always say you you say you're done with this. Well, it might not be done with you. Yeah. <laughs> it's unfortunately. Yeah. But when you see that, I think it's it's a signal of people are 
burned out. They're exhausted. They've lost trust. And understandably so. And they want to move on. And so a message that we've entered a phase where we're more protected. We have great tools. The, it's the individual needs to do this. It's not the power of government so much as people controlling their fates and that all these options exist that didn't exist a year ago. You want to get a test. You want to get vaccinated. You want to take home test and antigen test. You want a PCR rapidly. All these things are possible today. Those are great achievements. That's right. Well, Steve, let me ask you this, though. Does what's going on in Ukraine wipe out the United States' ability to really continue to fight this disease and maybe even future pandemics? Well, Ukraine, of course, is a, is a great war, right? It's, it's emerging into being quite a large conflagration, and the U.S. is in the lead on supporting the Ukrainians. It's enormously dangerous. It's enormously expensive. It's diverting resources. 5.2 million people have fled as refugees. UN just revised its estimate to 8.3 million refugees anticipated. There's 7.7 .7 million internally displaced. One third of its population doesn't sleep at home. We've had the destruction of, the, of, of large urban centers and the like. So it has the potential for diverting resources to take care of the refugees and deal with the internal situation from accounts that might otherwise be going to to other humanitarian things and to the COVID response. We know there's a food crisis internal to Ukraine and external in Middle East, Africa, because of the disruption of planting and export from Ukraine, disruption of fertilizer out of Russia and grain out of Russia. So we're sailing into, into, into that crisis. So it, it does, keeping an eye on the COVID response globally becomes more of a challenge. I'm heartened that President Biden is sticking with his commitment made last September 22nd, that there will be a summit May 12th. And the summit May 12th will be co-chaired by heads of state representing other major regional bodies, right? So you'll have the head of state of Belize representing this hemisphere. You'll have the president of Senegal representing the AU and on and on in Indonesia and others. That's an important step. It's one where the U.S. will continue to show resolve to bring forward new concrete commitments in the immediate response, but equally important to think about the future and make response in long-term preparedness. And the there is a big push to try and bring forward a, a long-term pandemic preparedness fund, a financial intermediary fund at the World Bank. We're making some progress on that. We're, the administration's hopeful that it will land a couple of big commitments May 12th. So, this administration is not uh, postponed action indefinitely on that summit commitment. Its diplomacy remains at a pretty high caliber, and it looks promising. We'll see. We're not there yet, May 12th. But Ukraine has certainly blown out the headlines. Everything before Ukraine was, you know, above A1 and in the top of the news was COVID. And since Ukraine, it's way further down on web pages, below the fold on hard copies, and not the biggest news every night uh, on the evening news or on cable. Yeah. So we've lost that ability to really move the public. Plus, as you say, the public's exhausted of, about this. And, you know, low and middle income countries, those who were back of the queue in terms of getting access to vaccines, those who were the victims of the gross inequities and, and the kind of vaccine nationalism that dominated the decisions by 
the world's wealthiest and most powerful countries. Low and middle income countries, of course, continue, they're still way behind. I mean, Africa is only 17% fully vaccinated. Most of the West is over 70%. So there's a huge gap. There's still a concern with bringing those capacities forward, but there's a surplus. The other thing I want to say is there's a great surplus of vaccine now globally. The question is, how do you bring that forward? How do you deliver it? And with what preparatory work with partner countries in order to build the capacity to deliver? Now, the United States has at USAID global vaccine program, which is designed to try and build those capacities in 20 focal countries in low and middle income countries. Well, they need about 5 billion this year in order to move that agenda forward. And that 5 billion, you know, fell out of the budget, fell out of the emergency supplemental and the like. And that was a disturbing signal that yes, Ukraine could command a very ample supplemental and other matters, but that the politics surrounding COVID were changing, both domestic and and nationally. And the way they're changing is it's no longer an emergency, so it's no longer an emergency supplemental with no offsets. Now it's a supplemental where you have to bargain your way and take it away from something else. And that gets into very contested territory for Dems and Republicans alike, having to give something up. And it gets ugly and, and gets very complicated. And so one of the consequences of the shift of the pandemic and the politics surrounding it and the arrival of the war in Ukraine is it's getting painfully difficult to sort of move the money required. And so, you know, Samantha Power and Jeremy Conondike and those leading the effort at USAID, they're all ready to go. They've done already done great things with monies in the ARP, the American Rescue Plan, but they've spent out. Uh, you know, the United States globally has spent about 19 or 20 billion on the global response to great effect. And yet they've that money has, for the most part, been appropriated, been allocated and, and, and dedicated, and we need more to sustain that effort. And it's becoming more difficult. And Ukraine does not make that easier. The other thing I'd say is, Ukraine, I think, will have, in the short term, a very deleterious impact on the COVID response. We're already shifting towards the, you know, moving out of crisis and into neglect. Ukraine sort of accelerates that that phenomenon, and it's going to make money very, very, very scarce for all sorts of purposes. And we're entering a period of triage on foreign aid, and it's going to be painful. It's going to be triage that pits global health against health security, against climate change, against all sorts of very worthy developmental purposes against food insecurity and malnutrition and on and on. We're in a period of contraction, financial contraction of the major donors and and the like, and that's going to be painful and we're going to have to get through this. On the other side of this, though, the war in Ukraine, the Russian invasion in Ukraine is changing the global order. It's changing our sense of security for the future. How that all unfolds still to be seen, but The U.S.-European alliance is in a wholly different position today. That's a very positive thing. We are moving into, sadly, moving into a much more bifurcated world with rigid lines drawn between the West, the transatlantic West, China, Russia. It's going to put a big focus on alliances with low and middle income countries. We are going to be 
back into a geostrategic logic of, well, what are we doing that's going to bring much of the rest of the world to our side? They're not all with us, right? I mean, you look at what's happening with the not. votes on Ukraine. And that brings us back to COVID-19 and health security, right? I think that at the end of the day, there's going to be a new geopolitical logic for supporting investments in this area, in our own national security interests, in this new world order that's going to emerge out of it, whatever this new world order that emerges out of this crisis in Ukraine. But in the short to medium term, it's triage, it's contraction, it's pain. And we're going to have to get through this. And again, I applaud the president for stepping forward and sticking to his commitment on May 12th. We may be dissatisfied with that, but it's the president of the United States with four or five other presidents coming forward in this. There's 20 to 30 states participating. The other thing I want to mention is the global fund replenishment is coming up in the fall. And the global fund, of course, HIV, TB, malaria, a central institution. The U.S. does a third of its commitment. U.S. is hosting the replenishment in the fall. We do a third of that commitment. So we're committing to $6 billion over three years. But we've got to put our shoulder to the wheel with others in getting the funding forward. And there's a lot of anxiety right now as a result of Ukraine that getting to that 18 billion three-year target is going to become more and more difficult because the coffers in the wealthy donors are diminishing, right? I mean, look at what's happening in Germany and France, the UK and elsewhere. So Steve, I want to bring it a little bit closer to home for those of us who are over 50. Both you and me got our second booster shot, our fourth shot in the last couple of weeks. And there is a growing concern in the United States of booster fatigue. What is the deal you think with booster fatigue and what does that pretend for the future? When we started getting vaccines in early 2021 and we were so overjoyed to get the double you know, mRNA vaccine or the single J&J and feeling like, okay, we're suddenly now protected. And we had that. And then we had Delta show up the end of June and suddenly, oh my, there's these variants that come forward with velocity and they're able to evade the protections. And guess what? We didn't really fully appreciate the degree to which, the speed with which you could have immunity wane and the speed with which you'd see new variants come forward that could pierce that protection. So then it was, okay, we need boosters, right? And then we get Omicron appear. It's even worse. And now we've got new variants of Omicron. So we've been in this bumpy cycle where our expectations kept getting overturned. Oh, okay. I'm not as protected as I thought I was. I hadn't fully understood the waning aspect of this. Some of the way we even explain vaccines, right? That vaccines don't necessarily protect you against infection. What you're really looking for is to be protected against serious illness, serious illness and death. Yeah. That people had to understand that distinction. And that distinction was not very well explained or understood in the early phase. Right. It wasn't well communicated by the government. Yeah. And so... And it got lost again in the in the yeah, COVID war, yeah. COVID culture wars. Yeah. So then the va the boosters come forward, and you know I think that with the first booster, we were surprised at the slowness in uptake. We're still under fifty percent of Americans, I believe, which is astonishing. That 
that have are fully vaccinated and eligible for the, I mean, everybody. And if you on the CVS app right now, you can get an appointment today at one of three, four pharmacies close to you. Um, It's that easy. Same day. Very, very easy. I think there's multiple reasons why people would choose to delay or not go for a booster. You know, they may not feel the threat. They may ask themselves, is, is taking this rapid succession of mRNA vaccines, is this a smart thing? What do we know about this? And they, they may feel that uh, they want to time the boosters to some event in their lives. If they're traveling abroad. Yes. If they, if they know, okay, this is only going to give me two or three months of protection, then I want to time it so that if I'm going on a world trip or I'm going to my mother's 90th birthday party, then I make sure I maximize the utility of this. And then there's the debate now with the second booster, which is who really does need it? Should we be a little bit more disciplined in, in saying those who are most vulnerable should be the per- persons encouraged to really go out and do this and be most eligible? So right now, you know, above 50, those are immunocompromised, those who have special vulnerabilities. You know, we've, we've been pretty good, I think, in this country in protecting our elderly. We had, in the early phases of the outbreak, we had very high losses, right? Very high losses of, in elderly and nursing homes and the like. Probably a third of the deaths, right? That's been brought down, way down by vaccinations and the like. And I think if you go and look at boosters in those targeted areas, I think probably it's better. It's probably better. Places where there's institutional structures and you can administer and they're thinking, you know, let's take full advantage of this. As to are we going to slip into a seasonality? Maybe. I think a lot of people believe that if it's becoming endemic, like the seasonal influenza, there will be some form of a pan-variant vaccine that's given on a seasonal basis. Right, but why is this so stigmatized? We get a flu shot, or we're supposed to get a flu shot every year. That's an annual vaccination. Why is there this stigma around getting booster shots with COVID? I don't know that, I mean, look, there's a certain hesitancy and refusal around vaccines in the United States, and we know that. Sure. But we also know that we made enormous gains. There was, at one point, the proportion of our population that were either saying no or they were on the fence was very high, right? Almost half the population. That's now been brought down to one in five, right? We've, we've engaged our population. We've talked to people. We've made the case. We've listened and answered concerns. Our doctors have been there for people as right. a trusted source. Yeah, so overall we have had, we may be more polarized. We may see measures of distrust, but 70% of our population is vaccinated. And, and yes, people are slow. Less than 50% of that population has gone for boosters. That's still a significant achievement, right? It is. And and it could, you know, if people get a little uncomfortable, if they see outbreaks in their community, they'll go get that booster. You know, it may be that people just, they don't feel unsettled in the way they did earlier, where they were really worried about being infected and infecting other people. That we've reached a level of transmission where those fears kind of go away, at least temporarily. But if they come back, as you point out, 
If we're suddenly in high transmission and you go, oh my gosh, I didn't get that booster, then you go get it. I mean- It's available. Yeah. I mean, my mother's, we're doing my mother's 90th birthday party end of next week. And so most of my, most of my siblings and myself are all going out and getting boosters in anticipation of that with enough time lapsed. So it's all kind of timed to that. Yeah. And, and it kind of focuses your brain. In the meantime, you don't get up every day and say, oh my God, I need this today because you don't see in your environment that kind of transmission. Well, I just want to be able to go into a 7-Eleven and get a Diet Coke and feel safe. So <laughs> there's definitely, you know, major events and then minor events too. Um, Steve, I want to ask you finally about China. You know, this is, strangely enough, it's an underreported story. Um, we've got Ukraine going on. We've got our own issues in the United States. There's a lot going on here. But China is, it's a, not a good story in China right now, is it? Well, no, it's not. I mean, they, it's a complicated story, but they, to put it in brief, simple terms, I mean, China chose a, a very draconian zero COVID approach, and it worked until Omicron showed up, right? And what I mean by that is they kept the virus, they kept the virus at a very, very, very extremely low level. Yeah, they locked people up in their houses and apartments. By having lockdowns, mass testing, quarantine isolation, an army of people deployed to enforce this, data surveillance used in ways that you would never see happen here, and the power of the one of the single party state being put behind it and the policy being the signature policy of President Xi himself. And him saying, this is proof positive of the superiority of our approach. Look at the United States. Out of control transmission, a million people dead. Look at China, 5,000 dead, a couple hundred thousand cases. You're, you're, you've resumed your life. You're back in your factories. You're not disrupted, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that, people bought into that social compact. There were those who saw it as too draconian, too defiant of human rights and civil liberties and the like. Excessive in many ways. But you didn't have the situation you have now, which is Omicron is so fast, it's so asymptomatic that it outstrips these controls, right? And so it appears in Shanghai, right, the crown jewel, and it's been there since March, and they're struggling to, but the lockdowns are still fiercely in place there, and now they're creeping towards Beijing, and Nomura, the Japanese bank, did an estimate almost two weeks ago and said the number of cities in partial or full lockdown, 45, up in a two-week period from 23 from 173 million people affected to 373 million people affected. That's 25% of the population. That was two weeks ago. That number will have risen. Since then, 40% of the GDP. So what happens? It has angered and upset large numbers of people that are very cosmopolitan in places like Shanghai because they're isolated for extended periods. Their basic needs can't be satisfied in terms of food, water, and the like. They are feeling that this is excessive in keeping people locked down and that they, they get trapped in a cycle of, of outbreak lockdown, outbreak lockdown. And, and, and so there's been a huge well of opposition, social media, 
and the like that the governments tried to repress. The government has sort of doubled down. The government has also tried to institute measures that are more discriminatory, a little bit narrower applied, more humane to try and answer the political and human response. The other thing that they're paying is this is hugely disruptive to their economy and their economic growth. Last week, IMF World Bank dropped their estimate of the economic growth this year from 44 to 4%. Xi's target's 5.5. The exports are declining. Consumer purchases in China are declining precipitously. Supply chains are getting disrupted globally. The failure of the lockdown is having global impacts on inflation, supply chain disruptions, um, and the like. The last thing I'd say is, what's the solution here, right? Because Xi has pinned his reputation and his standing and his desire to get to the party Congress and be elected for a third term on delivering economic growth, delivering on control of the pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. And he's failing in this way. What's his choices now? They're deathly afraid that if they just decided, okay, we're going to go to a, a strategy where we live with this virus, we say it's not that dangerous, but we focus on the most vulnerable populations that they won't be able fast enough to deal with those populations. Keep in mind, they have neglected to vaccinate the elderly. In a Shanghai alone, there are 800,000 people above 80 years of age. The vaccination coverage rate is 15, 1.5%. So those populations, and there are 800 homes, uh, facilities for elder, elder care in Shanghai. Not to mention their vaccines are weaker than ours. Their vaccines are not very good. They have lower coverage. They have fast fading immunity. If that's all they have at the moment, they should still be boosting with that. And they've tried to step that up. And they've tried to, to correct the, their great mistake in not encouraging, if not enforcing, vaccination among the most vulnerable and the elderly. What they need is mRNA on a mass scale. They need a mRNA on a mass scale. National Pride's getting in their way on that. There's an offer on the table from BioNTech with Fozun, the Shanghai producer, to bring forward a billion doses. They're, they're going to have to swallow their pride at some point in order to like move forward. Their, their mRNA vaccines are not coming forward fast enough with quality. There's too much uncertainty around their ability to even produce and distribute on scale and the speed needed. So they need to make a a big pivot and come to their senses around this. And some people are beginning to say that, but it's a, it's a human tragedy and it's very poignant and painful to, to see this unfold because lots and lots of people are suffering as a result of this. The outside world is amazingly disengaged from trying to find a solution for this, which is also astonishing. This is a, the biggest global health crisis we face right now. Steve, Thank you very much for helping us get to the truth of the matter on a whole array of these complex issues surrounding COVID. Thanks so much. Thank you, Andrew. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 